Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. And this is our review of The Usual Suspects, starring Gabriel Byrne, Stephen Baldwin, Benicio Del Toro, Kevin Pollack, Chaz Palminteri, Pete Postlewaite, Giancarlo Esposito, and Kevin Spacey. Released in 1995 on a budget of $6 million, grossed $34.4 million at the box office, won two Academy Awards, and has a strong following even to this day some 21 years later, right, Kurt? Absolutely. There's always that. This is one of those movies, like we said, with Seven. There's always that. Every year there's a new group of who knows however many million people that have not ever heard of this movie and watched it for the first time. Right. I mean, it's, it's another one of those classics of the 90s. And I remember when this came out, hearing a lot of buzz about it. I was actually in college. I was a freshman in college, and I missed <laughs> it at the theater. I don't even know if it was in our theater very long, but I missed it. And then I heard about it on the Academy Awards, and everybody was talking about, oh, is this great twist, you know? And <laughs> But nobody spoiled it for me, thankfully. And a friend of mine in college, uh, Robert Crisp, um, I'm still friends with out there on Facebook, so shout out to Bob. He, like, raved about this. And before he graduated, he was a senior. He's like, we got to watch this. So he went and rented it. And we watched the VHS of it in 1996. And I just remember like being completely mind blown at the end of the thing. Cause I was like, no way, you know? And so <laughs> it, I mean, it was, it's been one of those that I've owned on VHS. I've owned it on DVD. I own it on digital. I mean, it's, it's one of those that's yeah. been in my collection for a long time. But to be honest, it's been a while since I've seen this one. Um, my go-to crime film when I want to watch one is usually Heat. You know, we talked about that a couple of years ago, right. and uh, the same year as this. Uh, it came out you know later in the year, but uh, same time frame. And uh, it's neat that both of those movies are 1995. But uh, crime films, you know, always an, an interest area of mine. I love good capers. Oh yeah, ninety and ninety-five was a hell of a year for crime movies because not just Usual Suspects and Heat, but you also have Seven, which is you know. As much as it's horrifying oh, yeah. it is in the crime genre, and you have Casino, uh, which I think is a massively underrated uh, 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 good, movie. But that, that was a hell of a year, yeah. It really was, and you know Brian Singer here. I mean, this is his first big thing. I think he'd done a couple of small films at this point with Christopher McQuarrie. I mean, a, a frequent collaborator, and I remember they were like the it thing for a while. Of course, Singer now known for his superhero franchises, I guess, as much as anything and and stuff but this was the one that kind of started him and got him launched in Hollywood and it certainly you know launched Macquarie's career in Hollywood he's done everything up to the latest uh, mission impossible oh yeah and, and I was singer like uh, it's weird like when I, when I first watched this movie it was uh I was going backward because I was already a huge fan of singer because of what he did with the X-Men movies because I first saw the movie in 2004 so his last two movies would have been X-Men 1 and 2 and what he did with those movies is fantastic, and it's very tough to argue against that. Like, if it weren't for what he did with that first X Men movie, we would not have we would not have the Batman Superman movie that just came out uh, over the weekend. He he just he he created a movie that's like, okay, this is how you do this insane stuff that happens in a comic book like X Men. This is how you do it in a film, and he kind of changed you know changed the game forever. But then he. He uh, tried it again with with Superman, 
and uh, I am not a fan of that. I think that movie's <laughs> kind of. I'm a, I'm a super as much as, as I'm a Superman fan. That movie was just a total waste of, of 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 potential for what could have happened. Like eventually, that movie could have melted with Batman Begins or something. But that didn't happen. That movie's a waste of space. And I didn't see Valkyrie or Jack the Giant Slater, but Singer totally redeemed himself and proved that he is, you know. He was—he's not just some '90s to 2000s guy. He totally redeemed himself when he made uh, uh, X-Men: Days of Future Past, which yeah. I think was shockingly good for being, you know, the seventh X-Men movie. <laughs> yeah, I, that one was was good. Uh, yeah, seventh films in franchises can work sometimes. Though. Like Halloween H2O is a great example of when you get <laughs> back to your roots and you get your original people back. In a lot of ways, it it can yeah. work, and that's a uh, you know that's me being the Halloween fanboy. I I will remind listeners who've listened to the show long enough. Brian and I did the Superman retrospective back when Man of Steel came out, <laughs> and we you know we had problems with Superman Returns. Mostly the Lois Lane story was yeah. like we were done with that, but. It was all right. I, I'm not one of those people that hates that movie just outright. I thought there was something there, but it needed like it needed another editor. Like there needed to be somebody else going, Brian, you really ought to cut this. Like this doesn't really fit, and this doesn't really work. Like it doesn't work altogether. It's medium popcornish, but it's okay. That's the thing about Singer. Like sometimes, like he rarely misses big. Like I've seen him, you know, like apt pupils a piece of garbage, but you know he rarely misses big. He just kind of misses sometimes, and the, and you sort of get frustrated because. You you see the potential of what it could have been, but then when he hits it out of the park like this and Days of Future Past and X2 may be the best comic book movie made, you know, for pound for pound when it's all said and done, you know, uh, if you take out the Nolan verse stuff, uh, I mean, that those yeah, the Nolan films are almost their own thing, really. I, I don't even know if I could put them in the same category, but like you put that up against most of you know what Zack Snyder's doing and, and other stuff. I that movie's fantastic still. X two's great. And uh I I I like Singer and I want him to be good. That's the thing. And even Macquarie, like I've seen some of his stuff like Way of the Gun and some of those kind of things, and I like want it to be good. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Yeah, with the quarry, I've only I've only seen like two things connected to him, and that's Usual Suspects and Mission Impossible Five, which uh, I wouldn't call it a great great film, but I absolutely think it deserves props. That oh, there was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was like for the fifth movie in a franchise. I mean, it was pretty good. Yeah, for the like the fifth movie in what you know what seem every time it comes out, I keep thinking, okay, I guess they're I guess it's a dead franchise trying to squeeze another buck. And every time they make one, it's like, that oh, it was actually really good. And he actually, I think it made a very impressive movie that absolutely stacked up against, uh, you know, uh, Spectre last year. Oh, compl- uh, yeah, I will tell you now, I- I'm a James Bond fanatic, but I was way more entertained in Rogue Nation than Spectre. Spectre was freaking mm. boring compared to <laughs> compared to Rogue Nation. Now, the both plots are about as thin, but... Cruz sold it, you know. Right. Daniel Craig just looked bored. So, but that's it's another day. But you know, usual suspects. You said you worked backwards to this one. So, did you know the big twist going into it? Had you heard that? Had it spoiled for you? Oh no! Like I, I yeah. When like I got this as a uh, Christmas gift from my dad on DVD in two thousand four, and I don't think I'd even heard of it when I got it. I I think I, I might have known of it. Looked like maybe when I looked up Brian Singer after X Men and saw he made a movie called Usual Suspects, but I had no clue what it was about or even what genre it was. You look at that cover of the five guys in the lineup, you still don't know what kind of movie it is. And uh, yeah, I had, like no, I didn't even know there was a twist coming, which is even better for for you know major, for a big twist like that. And uh, 
you know, as good as the whole movie is, it is all, you know, the whole movie is great, but it is all about that final minute. And that's how Chris McCory puts it on the commentary. He said that he wanted the audience to not have a clue really what's going on in the movie until literally the final 60 seconds, not the last five minutes, the last 60 seconds, it all clicks into place. And, and ever since seeing that movie, it's, it's become one of my favorite crime films. It, it, and it, what's great about it is that it doesn't fit into a box like other crime films. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's like, you know, it's, a, it's not a heist movie. It's not a mafia movie or a drug movie. It's very much its own thing. And in that way, it makes me think of Pulp Fiction. How you, you know, you can't just say, oh, yeah, it's a gangster movie. It's, it's very much it, uh, its own original thing. It totally is, and I think that's why it works so well. Is that it, there's there's not a lot like it, you know. It's a it's a neo noir film is is what I like to call it. I mean, it certainly fits in that category, and I think that's fair to call it that. And I like it because of that. I think that it gives it a a different flavor, you know. Like noir films had gone through like the sleazy period of the late eighties and early nineties, like Black <laughs> Widow and Basic Instinct, and you know, <laughs> J- Jagged Edge and Jade and all that. You know, uh, Jade was a little bit after that, but it was more mid nineties. But yeah, th- that kind of thing. <laughs> like it had done that, the Joe Esterhaus uh, yeah. side of things, I guess you want to say it. And they had come out of that, and and now this was the rise of independent film. Right, you know, so these were small films with studios trying not to lose a lot and and get big return, and this was one of those. This is another one of those things that you know they found it and and it it became this massive you know critical hit, and it was a you know a huge hit at the box office. I mean, you know, the numbers don't sound that impressive, but that doesn't even include like the DVD and and VHS sales and rentals. Like this was one of the top grossing home video buys in for several years. And they totally made their money on this one. And, um, I don't, you know, I know they had to pay a lot to get some of the people to be in it that they got in it or whatever, but, <laughs> uh, good on them because it, it was worth paying because they, they got, they got some of the best performances out of some of these performers, I think, that, that ever happened, uh, which is pretty amazing. I also think it's great, too, that every time we do one of these films, I find out your dad has incredible taste in movies. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, he We're going to have to have him on the show sometime or something, <laughs> man. Like, everything he brings you, I'm like, gosh, this is like, Kirk's dad's awesome. So, I had the same kind of thing with my dad. Like, he introduced me to so many things, you know, and uh, it's funny to think about, but that's a lot of times my story, too. It's like, well, my dad saw this, and I remember showing this to my dad, though, and he was like, wait, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like, that was his exact reaction at the end of it. And uh, But my mother got it. Like She was like, do you don't get it? They're like, I've known that for, like, she figured it out early. Like, she was one of those that loved to figure things out. So I like a good caper where you don't know the answers. I think that's neat. And I, I will say this, too. If, if you've not, if you own the disc or anything, people, if you can get a hold of it, it's one of the better, like, director-writer commentaries I've ever had on a, on a disc. Like it's it's really good the stuff that they tell you. It, they don't sound bored at all with it. It's insightful and it's interesting and it's also kind of raw. Like they'll they'll tell you like you know we were pissed at them this day and realized later nope that was actually the right thing to do. And so I I don't know I thought that was kind of neat that they will tell so much insight on each other on this thing. Oh yeah, it's great talking about it and talking about you know how they came up with this idea. How you know like even like the, one of the more definitive more iconic names in cinema history, Kaiser Soze was not the original name of the character. Like the, 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 he talks about that, talks about how trying to, about how tough it is to string an audience along like this until that last, you know, 60 seconds. And, uh, and it is a great commentary. 
That's really fun. And I you know, I think the, the way we're going to get into this, I do think a lot of people listening to this will have seen this movie. They know this movie. So we need to do a plot summary. But I want to do this one a little different. I don't, you know, I don't know if about reviewing this one and like talking through it like we normally do. I think it's better to talk about all of our characters in depth. And I kind of want to introduce you to like doing this the way that Brian and I used to do the Art of Slaying podcast where we, <laughs> we didn't just talk through the episode so much as we talked about what everybody did in it. And then we can figure it out from there. Because I do have questions about it. I mean, I this is a good movie i'll go ahead and you know tease that right now but it's not perfect like there's uh, there's always parts of this i watch and i'm like no wait a minute what you know and so i'm, I'm yeah. curious to hear what you have to say about that but why don't you uh give us a plot summary real quick and just kind of lay the land uh, out there on the usual suspects oh yeah and for god's sakes like if you if for whatever reason you're listening to this and you haven't seen it stop stop listening right now so yeah spoiler alert go, go we're going to recommend it <laughs> so <clears throat> A massive explosion rips through a ship in uh, San Pedro, California harbor, leaving 27 men dead with two survivors, one a crippled small-time crook and the other a horribly burned man. And $91 million worth of cocaine believed to be on board is mysteriously missing. Customs agent Dave Kuyan talks with the crippled verbal Kent to get to the bottom of what happened at the harbor. Kent weaves a tale of about five small-time hoods from New York who were brought together as a suspects in a carjacking and form an alliance to rip off some jewels. The five are later approached by a, a man claiming to be a representative of a mysterious crime boss, Kaiser Soze. Unknowingly, all five, uh, unknowingly, all five have stolen from Soze, and he demands repayment. One of them refuses and is later killed, so the remaining four go out west to pull a bigger heist involving $91 million worth of drugs. However, all this proves to be a ruse as the men are all killed by Soze, along with a witness hiding on that boat. And in the final twist, we, we learn that Verbal Kent is not crippled at all. He's simply faking that uh, persona because he is Kaiser Soze. And he slips away from Agent Kuyan just before he could be captured, leaving us all to wonder how much of what we just watched even happened. Yeah, that's the big question I have is, and we'll get to it here, is how much of this is even taking place or how much of it is just... Kaiser Soze screwing around with the customs agent before he has to leave, but uh, we, we'll get there. We'll get there. There's a lot to get into here. I guess the logical place to start is with the suspects, right? Like these <laughs> these five characters, and you know, we talked about ensemble cast before, and we mentioned 1995 seemed to be the year of the ensemble movie. I mean, they're just so many good ones to think about. Heat and. Uh, Gosh, uh, you know, seven. You can, in some way, could could call an ensemble. I, I, you know, this really just a Pitt and, and Morgan Freeman, though. But I mean, you've got stuff like uh, Tombstone came out like the year before, right around there. That's a great ensemble pick. There's a, Casino is a fantastic ensemble movie. So all these things, and, and I think it hinges on the fact that if you don't get these five guys right, none of the rest of this is going to work, right? Yeah. Like that's that's what we know. And I think the one to start with is probably the Dean Keaton character, Gabriel Byrne here. Um, he was the guy they wanted for sure to do this. Like they were all about, we got to have Gabriel Byrne do this because they were enamored with him after what Miller's crossing and some other stuff that he had been doing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Gabriel Byrne. He's one of those, uh, way underrated actors in that same way of, uh, of Michael Keaton uh, in the way that like, I keep thinking, man, why don't people just use him more? And of course, Gabriel Byrne, he's, I guess he's gotten more work lately. You've got uh, that show in treatment, which I haven't seen, but, but apparently is really great. And, uh, and yeah, he's really good in this movie as, 
as a sort of a leading man, because I should point out, it is an ensemble movie. There isn't necessarily one character that's like, well, that's the main guy, because it's kind of a split between you got Keaton, you got Kuyan, and you got uh, and you got Kent. Didn't think of that until just now. Uh, and yeah, he's he is fantastic and is a good character. No, and I, I love him in this because the thing is, is he he has to play this character. I love I love the Keaton stories. He used to be a cop, but he was a dirty cop for various reasons. I mean, he shot people, murdered suspects. He was also like a thief. He was ripping people off, and he had a warehouse and you know all kinds of stuff. See this double life, and he he's known to be the way Dave Kuyan describes him is he's just the most sinister, heartless bastard in the world, right? And the thing is, is when you see Byrne, he doesn't play it like over the top for it. He's just so calculating. Like, I almost think like Gabriel Byrne could have been a young, a good young Hannibal Lecter. You know, like he has that kind of cool confidence. Uh, I mean, I think the scene that may typify it the best for me, it, it, there's really two of them. But the, the one that I always think about is the one where he is, um, oh, hold on a second. Well, there, okay, there's three scenes that really get it for me. One is right after the first bust when his girlfriend, the, the lawyer, gets him out. And he's standing on the steps, and she's trying to like tell him, it's okay, or I'm going to take care of it, we'll screw these people over, you know, I'm a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. And he, and then to, like, she's even like telling him, you know, I love you or whatever, and he's just like, these freaking people have ruined me tonight. Like, he's just so cold, <laughs> right? And then when they're out in California and they're dealing with that fence, and he's like, hey, I need to let you know that guy that you know that I know too, he, yeah, too bad he got shipped. Yeah, I shipped him. Better you hear it from me <laughs> than somebody else. You know, and then in, in the end, when they ultimately decide to do the Kaiser Soze job when he's on the beach burying Finster, and he's he's all uh, Benicio, Benicio Del Toro's character, and he's all like, I'm not doing this for any of you. I'm doing this for me. And he's just so pissed off, you know? Like, he's got this quiet anger to him. And I, he's, he's like, he's always on the verge of just exploding. But we never see him get out of control. That's the thing about him that I really like. Yeah, and yeah, it really is a great character. I think he's almost like, he's just, I think he's as much of a mystery as, as Kaiser Soze is in a way. Because every five minutes, we keep learning something big like or horrible about his past like like all like you know first time we see him he's in some you know he's trying to get a restaurant going and then like 10 minutes later we find out this is a guy who killed three people while he was in prison uh and then he, you know, he's a corrupt cop and a thief on the side and uh and but it's, it's tough not to sympathize with him because you get the sense that he is kind of done with crime like whatever horrible shit he did in the, in the past he is ready to move on. The movie starts. You know, just wants to make a restaurant, have a normal life. But it's when he can't have that that he goes. And he doesn't go crazy, but he gets he gets angry and he goes back to uh, well, what he does best. Well, I mean, it's it's all in. It's like the Godfather three. Every time I'm out, they pull me right back in, and oh, yeah. and, and it's it kind of seems like. You know, he, he doesn't have friends on the force anymore because of this necessarily. And he's also not a friend in the, the world of the thieves so much. There's no honor among those. He's kind of a, a man on an island. And if it weren't for Edie, you know, who knows what he'd be doing. And, and that's the only thing that's really kind of keeping him remotely straight. You know, at all. And it doesn't take a lot. Like they, you know, they talk about, oh, it took a day of nagging to get him on board. It really didn't take a lot to get him to go back to crime. Like at some point, he's just like, okay, yeah, because that's what I'll go do now. And I, I don't know, I thought that was cool. I mean, I, I like the fact that as much as he wants to get out of this, he can't get out of it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an, un, it's kind of an unforgiven uh, story of the guy who, you know, who very much wants a normal life, but he, you know, and as much as he kind of doesn't want to do it, he, it's dangerous. He doesn't want to get, he doesn't want to risk everything. On another another level, 
there's a part of him he does enjoy it, even if he doesn't show because he wouldn't do it if he doesn't really want to do it and want that money. Right. And, and I mean, Dave Kuyan is convinced he's Kaiser Soze up until the last 60 seconds of the movie. Right. Like he or if there is a Kaiser Soze, it's Dean Keaton, you know, or he's using that as hmm. the guise of all of this. That's the way he plays it. And I love that bit when. When he's just running off all that stuff, like who could be the, uh, you know, the kind of person that could wrangle the wills of men and all that. Chas Palminteri's is great in that role. And mm. I, one thing's got to be said now too: the one reason that last sixty seconds work, and it's where a lot of these montages work, is because John Ottman is a hell of an editor. I don't. I mean, composer, eh, he's hit or miss, but as an editor, that dude gets it, and he knows how to flip between. I mean, it was like flip book scenes. It was amazing the editing job he did on this this film and in a lot of ways that's I, that's strictly because he he helped tell that story as much as anything and i thought that it was great but i love how keaton we're led to believe that dean keaton is this you know force of nature that just you know can't be stopped necessarily i mean he builds him up to be like the most ruthless serial killer of all time you know if yeah. you talk about him it's it's wild Oh yeah, yeah. The, the 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 relationship between Kuyan and and Keaton that we don't really see, uh, that that is that totally is why uh, Kuyan is so won't let go of this idea that that Keaton is uh, is Kaiser Sose. No, anyway, he won't let it go. And I'll I'll ask you this now. You know, again, you know, now you know the twist, so you can't say much mm-hmm. else about it. But when you didn't know, I bought it. Like I thought, yeah, he's he's got to be Kaiser Sose. You know, like I really thought that that was the way this was going to go, and that's not at all how it goes. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's twofold. There is one is uh, the way Kuyan is telling it, because we Kuyan is a, like he's a great detective and an interrogator and everything. We 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 kind of just we do want to believe him because he is uh, like a he's a good guy. And on another another level, the movie is doing such a great job of convincing me. That he's that he's Kaiser Soze with all with the with the montage and the certain flashbacks that they show shows you how easy it is to trick and to make an audience think whatever you want just by showing them, you know, some just showing him, you know, there's a very quick shot of him under a red light and yeah. you think, oh, that's evil. He, he must be the evil guy, you know. Well, plus he's got that face, man. He looks like a goblin or something, right? Like it's <laughs> just it's in the eyes and the nose. He's just, I mean, he just looks sinister that's the only way i can say it and he can just do this stuff and it's again that quiet confidence and, and sinister way he has of doing things that make you think yeah this guy this guy could be kaiser sits but of course we know he's okay. not but that's good and and that's perfectly balanced out by stephen baldwin's mcmanus <laughs> who is like it's a perfect name he's a maniac i mean he's <laughs> totally manic he's crazy he's always talking shit you know, and stuff like that. He's a complete bad, but he's a complete badass. Like he's like the uh, if you were to believe the story Verbal Kent is telling. Again, I'd say that you know, realizing, believe what you want. This guy's like the greatest shot in the world. Like he never misses. He kills two guys with two different guns standing in two spots. He guns down eight people from a roof. I mean, Manus is he's crazy, but he's awesome. Oh yeah, like he's a he's a total like manic nutbag, but he has he's absolutely like one of the, the in a way he's the kind of guy maybe you would want to have a drink with, but on the other level, he is the cold cold one of the colder guys in the movies. Like I think of that sh- there's a that bit on the boat 
when uh, you just see him walking past each door and just like mowing down whatever he's looking at, you know, uh, uh, th- uh, uh, through the boat. And it is a good time to mention Stephen Baldwin, who, for whatever reason, did not follow this performance up with anything worth noting. He played Barney Rubble in Flintstones 2, and I guess he went crazy or something. But, <laughs> but, but like, it's a, such a shame because he yeah. is so good in this movie. It's not just like, oh, he's like, he's like oh, I guess, you know, another forgotten Baldwin brother. It was like, but no, he's like, he is genuinely great in this movie. It is a shame that he didn't uh, uh, go on because he is, he is, and he's really, he is really funny. Just like, just, just in, you know, in the lineup, the way he uh, explodes on the line, just going crazy, wagging his tongue like a maniac and being interrogated by the cops. And they say, you know, it's like, well, where's the truck? It's like, what truck? The truck with the guns, fucko. And he just goes, fucko. It's totally unfair. Yeah. couldn't give a shit. <laughs> oh, no, he, he couldn't care less. And that's what makes him funny is, is he's so good at that. I think he is definitely part of the humor here. And I like that, though, that they've given us a character like that that's a total opposite. But he's, he's also just as large and in charge as um, Dean Keaton. You know, and he doesn't take shit off of him at all. He's just like, whatever. You know, like he doesn't care if this guy's you know real or whatever. If he's got all this this uh, um, reputation and all this stuff, he is his own guy. He's you know he's got his buddy Finster there, which we'll get to in a minute. But he's he's his own dude. And again, all the all for all the trash he talks, right and stuff, he is completely delivering on all of it. If you if you're to believe the way things go down the way that they do, McManus was was crazy, but he was really good on the job, and I I mean you could tell he was he was great. Oh yeah, like when he tells Redfoot, you know, you pull any more shit, I'm going to kill you. Certain other characters, you think, yeah, yeah, he's just talking, but we've the certain things we've seen, you know, McManus do up to this point is like, oh, he like when he says he's going to kill you, he's probably going to kill you. Oh I man, yeah, look, he when he, they have Kobayashi cornered there at one point, and he's like, I'm going to be the guy that gets you. I just want you to know that, and he's ready <laughs> to blow him away. And it's like, again, I, I look at that, and I'm like, well, you know, again, did that even happen? But if, even if it didn't, that's freaking badass. I mean, you know, it's like it's also sadistic. I mean, you realize that he's crazy and <laughs> and stuff, but that he's just so hardcore. I, I dug him, and uh, they pair him up with uh, a Finster, good old Benicio del Toro here, who is one of the strangest actors in the world. I mean, he really is. He just kind of does his thing, and man, I get a kick out of the fact that um, he. <laughs> You know, came up with this weird accent and weird way of talking for Finster to just kind of make it a, I don't know, to give it its, its own little piece. Because, I mean, his role is kind of small, if you think about it. He's not in the movie very long before he gets offed. And I, you never really see what he's good at other than just saying weird stuff and everybody going, what? What did you just say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Benicio Del Toro uh, uh, is, I, he really seriously is one of the best actors alive. He's one of those great character actor t- total chameleon uh, and his perform his some of his best performances are some of the best performances like the one he won the oscar for in traffic where he played it compared to you know like you look at him in usual suspects where he was he was very big and outlandish traffic he's, he's it's one of the most low-key perf- one of the best examples of acting by not acting whatever that phrase is like by not yeah. doing a lot and then and then 21 grams and sicario from last year which he well, i can't believe he I, wasn't up for an oscar for at, have you seen uh the hunted with tommy lee jones and him in it that's kind not of a yet, that's I, kind of a b picture but they both totally deliver in that and mm-hmm. he's fantastic in it but again it's just it's a subtle 
you know thing. It, this is like a big role. Like he's a he's playing big, which is sort of different because when I think of Benicio del Toro, I think about the subtle kind of performances that he gives. This one is just off the friggin' rails, man. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. He, yeah. And you Apparently, wonder, like, how he and McManus, like, can even function. Because <laughs> they're both just yeah. insane. It's kind of a Han and Chewie thing. Where all, apparently, the only guy I can understand him is, is McManus. And uh, apparently, the character of Fencer was meant to be a... Uh, they keep saying Harry Dean Stanton. Like, there's an older guy to be paired up with, like, Mr. Blue in, in Reservoir Dogs, I guess. Ben. And, you know, Del Toro, his idea was to make it so that you can't... You can't understand what he's saying, and you can't tell where he's from. And on the commentary, McCory says... That he's going for like a like he's he's going for like a combination of like of a Puerto Rican guy, a black guy, a Jewish guy, and a Chinese guy all at the same time. And what you it reminded can see me that. of, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, and what it reminded me of a little bit was of uh, Edward James Olmos in, uh, in Blade Runner, where you can't you can't understand him, and yet somehow you, it doesn't matter. Like you still it still gets across somehow it gets across what he is saying. And yeah, it's safe to say that yeah. nobody would play Fenster like. Benicio del Toro wouldn't. It's 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 truly a, a, a unique performance in in the history of film. Like there's no no, no one else tried has tried to copy this because how the hell could you? Yeah, there's no there's no way to. And I would argue, you know, one of the more quotable guys too. Even though you can't halfway understand what he's saying most of the time, but it's like you know, the hooker with dysentery. You know, he'll flip you, <laughs> flip you for real. You know, and like I I just love that. Like I have friends that like will quote that you know all the time, and and it's a crack to me because it's hilarious. He gets some of the best lines, and he's you know again he's not in the movie very long, and you don't really know what what his specialty is. That's the thing is like everybody else seems to have like a thing that they do, <laughs> like you know. McManus is the shooter, and and we'll learn. You know, Hockney, uh, Kevin Pollock is the the weapons guy and the explosives guy, and then Verbal's you know talks too much apparently. And uh, Gabriel Burns on top of everything, you know. But what the heck does uh, you know Fenster do other than just back up McManus? I guess that is his job. He's chewy. I think it's a good way to call it out. Yeah, he's uh, and also makes you he he almost might fall into that thing of uh, what is real in Verbal Kent's story, whether it even exists or not. Because that that also occurred to me is this is the thing with the whole movie is is uh, the characters of McManus, Fenster, and Hawkney are really only referred to by Kent through the story. Like we don't find because of the fire, every body we find is you know cinched to a Chris. We don't it, it, it helps Kent say who he can make up anything about who was there so for all we know fencer is such a uh, you know a fantastical character maybe even he maybe he doesn't even exist you know that's pretty fantastic i have never thought about that kurt but you're right these other three guys may not even be real for all we know this could have been verbal and keaton the whole time and you know because Keaton is central to the whole plot, and Edie Fennerin is, and we'll learn you know later why. But the, the with the whole you know Guatemalan and all that stuff, they're all connected to that. But you don't need the other three guys. I mean, you do because you have to have a lot of guys maybe to pull this job off, and that's why I kind of think you know maybe McManus at least exists, and maybe how well, he could you're right. Yeah. Fencer isn't even there in the end, and so maybe maybe he didn't exist. We don't know. But for the purposes of the story, when they say that you know Fenster got killed, that sent them after Kobayashi. It's like it, it just like Keaton. I mean, Kent verbal. He makes it work, you know, for a story. Like he just he created a guy that will be killed to make them want to go after Kobayashi. 
Right, which again, you gotta wonder, did, you know, did that even ever happen? You know, we, we can talk about at the end, I guess, what may happen, what didn't. I, I'm gonna keep saying that, but sure. I, I do, I do think that the Fincher character is really fun. You know, real or not, he's he's fantastic and and funny, and and for again, a small role does a lot with it. So let's go to Todd Hockney next, though, played by Kevin Pollak. I'll say this: it's hard for comedic actors to sometimes play other things than just being comics, you know? Like, Paul Reiser can do it. I always think about, like, the way he played the, the character in Aliens. Nobody ever remembers that about him. And, you know, <laughs> he's probably glad, too, because that guy was such a douchebag. But, yeah. I mean, really, like, he was so good at that. I was like, I totally buy this guy as, like, a sleazy business guy completely. I mean, <laughs> he embodied that totally. And I love the fact that they got Kevin Pollack, who's one of you know the funniest you know side comedians you can get in films, to play this you know totally didn't give an f about anybody or anything weapons and explosives expert. Who I mean he he actually rips off the truck that they get lined up for. Yeah. Never sweats a bullet at all. Doesn't even care when that's revealed later. He's like, what am I going to say? You know, and <laughs> I, it's so fun. I I love him. He's one of my favorite parts of this entire film. Yeah, Kevin Pollack, he is an he's a way underrated uh, uh, actor who had a nice, you know, uh, string of movies there. He was also he was also in Casino and of course he was in uh, a few good men. And he's always good. Any movie I've seen him in, he's always good. He's uh, he's in like one scene of Red State, he, he manages to be good and and funny in that. And uh and it's also like if you didn't know he was a comedian, I don't think you'd ever guess that he was. Oh, this guy's a, a stand-up. You just think he's another uh, character actor guy, like uh, like a guy like Joe Pesci or, or or whatever. But it is a really great character and performance. Like you know, his first uh, first time we see him, his reaction to seven guns, you know, pointing a gun at him is just like, hey, you sure you brought enough guys? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's great, but he's also he's also got a a really good podcast, and I recommend oh, yeah. like you go listen to it. Like some of his his acting buddies that he gets on there and stuff. Like the interview with Michael Chiklis is one of my favorite <laughs> of all time. That's a great one to go listen to, folks. I'm pumping somebody's cast here for nothing, but I mean the guy the guy's great at it though. I mean he's he's really fun and brings a lot to the role. And I mean it's a small role too. We should say Hockney doesn't have a ton to do. There's only a few scenes he really gets to do anything in, but he's good in all of them like when he's on the screen he's he's always got a quick one-liner or he's got a smirk or something and there's that one stare down between him and Stephen baldwin you know <laughs> where it looks like they're about to like make out or fight or something i don't know but it's it's perfect because you can tell they're both trying not to laugh at each other and just you see who blinks first and yeah i i love that it's it's great but you know hockney's i mean he's a little guy there's not anything to him but he don't give a damn i mean he'll just do whatever Oh yeah, he's got and he's got a great bit on the boat when he's uh, where he's just going crazy with that machine gun, and he, uh, he he's just running off to the van with the money, and, and just he's yelling something in Hungarian to the other you know Hungarian guy, and uh, what he's saying is, "Don't shoot, don't shoot," and uh, he just, as he, as he gets up to him, he, you know, blows his head off. Oh yeah, and then then of course he gets shot from behind. That's the thing yeah. is he gets taken out, you know, like that. And we, we should say everybody dies here. Gabriel Byrne is the one that gets the most protracted death. He, you know, he gets shot in the back, and then Kaiser Soze faces him off, and you know he reveals himself to him, and he, you know, gets shot in the head twice, and then he's done. But uh, and then McManus gets like stabbed in the back of the neck or something. It's really like weird uh, how he goes down, and he sort of falls in on the deck in front of. Uh, um, 
Gabriel Byrne at the end, or in front of uh, uh, Keaton there at the end, but uh, and Hockney gets you know, shot in the back and then shot in the head. He gets pretty violent death, you know, but that's that's the way it goes down for the guy. But I love the guy; that he's great. And so I, I feel like we can probably talk about you know Kevin Spacey uh, all day and talk yeah. about this movie. You know, uh, we we just did seven, and we, that performance is God. I don't know how. I mean, how how do you top that? Well, you turn around and do this. You know, it's like a totally different side of things. Kevin Spacey's another one of those guys that I don't think he's underrated at all. I think people realize how good he is. But use the word chameleon earlier for Benicio Del Toro. That's Kevin Spacey to me. He can play a a maniac serial killer. He can play a crime boss playing a cripple, you know, a crook. And then he can play like a dad in a suburb who's, you know, tired of his, his middle life crisis thing or whatever. I mean, he's just so, and then he can play the friggin' president of the United States, you know? So, and uh, the guy is just, it's never a dull moment with him, man. Oh, yeah. It's like basically everything around Kevin Spacey in this movie is kind of perfect. The performance, the character, characters, uh, and, uh, yeah, this, this character of, of verbal Kent. Uh, when we start the story, we think he's just some you know shy, lowly con man with cerebral palsy, and uh, in the end, the verbal we know he like it's a it's a question about you know the other characters, but the verbal kin that we are introduced to he doesn't exist, and uh, the key uh, I think I think the character of of verbal kin was created by Kaiser Soze maybe that morning in San Pedro, California, when he was arrested. And, uh, and I, like the movie itself, and like the movie itself, uh, uh, Kaiser gives us a character we would never think could possibly be even tied to a guy like Kaiser Sosa. Just the cerebral palsy is totally, uh, puts it over the top, playing on everyone's sympathies. Like, oh, yeah, CP, he couldn't possibly be evil. And, and, Kaiser, and Kaiser makes verbal pathetic and sympathetic to the point where He's almost the most likable character in the movie, just to further remove himself from suspicion. And the uh, the casting of Kevin Spacey is so key. The singer and McCoy, they both wanted him for it, and it's clear why in 1995, before Seven anyway. And McCoy talks about this on Kevin Pollock's podcast, how that in any movie, horror movie, crime movie, whatever, where the villain is secretly another character in the movie, like a janitor in the background or whatever, he says – his, his problem with this in film was, you know, you look at it, you look at that guy and think, well, there's nothing about him that makes him, you think he's a villain, except for the fact that he was a killer in a slasher movie. He was a bad guy in that episode of Law and Order. He was a corrupt politician in that political thriller. He played a guy who strangled his wife two movies ago. Basically, the actor gave it away because you've seen them play villains before. But Spacey in 95, he was one of those just sort of, oh, that guy character actors. Like he was in Glen, Glen Gary, Glenn Ross. He was in The Ref, which is awesome. A lot of yes. TV shows. But but he never played a bad guy, and he doesn't look well, like a guy. He he looks like a nice guy. I've got. He was in a movie in 1992 that I saw. It was one of those random rentals. Uh, uh, one night for me, it's Kevin Klein, Mary Elizabeth Mestriano, and uh, it's called Consenting Adults. And just a real quick on it, like these two neighbors really get on with each other, he and Kevin Klein, and they decide to do this. They have this whole discussion about, you ever think about just swapping wives in the middle of the night? Like you could just roll in and like, you know, it would go down and no big deal or whatever. And what you find out is that he's setting Kevin Klein up along with his wife for like this great insurance scam. 
So he's, I mean, he's he's a total bad guy in that. But the movie, like, nobody friggin' saw it. You know, it made $20 million. It was one of those, it was, again, one of those sleazy thrillers of the 90s that just sort of slid under the table and nobody cares about it. But I dare anyone who likes Kevin Spacey, and, and they haven't seen that, go back and see that movie and watch, and you can see the gem, the, the germs of all the the bad guys he could play because he did it in that with a really crappy script and a really cheesy movie he made that thing completely work and he's great in it he's the only good thing in it kevin klein is totally wrong in that movie but he's good (laughs) in it it's fun and i he's he's so good at being bad that's the thing he's just so good at being bad and uh, it, it makes you really appreciate him but he's the kind of guy that pulls pulls this off so well you just blew my mind a little bit ago though because i had not thought about this as many times i've watched this movie that verbal kent the other four guys never saw that dude that he could have just been normal just been walking around like whatever he played all that other crap up you know and had that whole back file loaded in because they talk about like you know the mayor's been in all these politicians there's a chief police calling so he had all this file loaded on this guy and he just rolled in that morning and was the CP guy, but he may have never been that guy to the gang, right? Like you could you could make an argument that that's how that went down. Oh yeah, and like again, this brings up like the you know what is real, what is not. It could it could be completely bullshit that you know. Uh, in fact, it makes no sense that a a guy was CP. You'd give that guy a gun in in a way like like you wouldn't you would never accept him into a into a, into somewhere where we're going to be killing people. Uh, and yeah, the, like, yeah, the, the whole thing of like, you know, he made it all up that morning. It's like a, like a, like a, like a backup personality, which is something from a Batman comic. He, he, he said, if ever, if anything ever goes, like if I ever am so broken in my mind, I have this backup personality to kick in. That's kind of what, what, what Kaiser, so I mean, what verbal Kent is. is like, if I ever get, if I ever get arrested, I'm never going to, but if I ever do, I'm going to play this guy. I'm going to make him yeah. going to give him cerebral palsy so everyone will really I'm going to make him I'm going to make him stupid. I'm going to make him shy and just this, you know, wimpy kind of guy so that, you know, no one will ever suspect anything of me. No, no, and that's and it's the perfect thing, and I think that's one of the best parts about that reveal—the way Ottman cuts all those little pieces together. Because so you can see that he's like when you watch the movie, knowing the secret of it or whatever, and you watch the first few shots of Spacey, he's just sitting in the office there of the cop, right, and he's waiting on whoever to come talk to him. And he's looking around, and you just think he's just kind of bored. But what he's doing is he's looking at like, okay, that board's made in quartet Skokillin. Okay, use that. There's that work, a lady. Okay, Redfoot, that's a cool word. I'll use that. And he's just picking out shit that he's going to use. You know, and and when you watch it, you see like, I mean, this guy is like the greatest liar on the planet. Like, he can just make shit up on the spot. He'd, he'd have killed on whose line is it anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, he really is uh you know, a genius like a Kaiser Soze verbal Kent, whoever is a genius. How, uh, like, there's one, like, he is one of just like there's there's the whole Kaiser Soze thing with the crime and the empire, but this idea of uh, fooling every like he's in the cop station. Like, if they wanted, like, if they ever did catch on, all they just got to put handcuffs on him and the game's over. But he manages to convince him to the point where they literally let him walk out the front door and like the. That is like the best, you know, heist anyone ever pulled. 
it's it's the it's the fun. Well, I mean, he even says the line, right? You know, the greatest t- trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist, and then you know, mm-hmm. he's poof, he's gone. And he talks about Kaiser Soze's history is that way, but he he's pretty much telling them. I know how to disappear, and I'm going to totally disappear. And he even says it again. He's like, yeah, I'm sure after, you know, Soze gets rid of me, you'll never hear from him again. So he's basically telling them, like, I'm gone. You guys are never going to hear from me again. I've taken out all of my enemies in one day. He's done the Michael Corleone at the end of The Godfather, <laughs> the first one. He's taken out, settle up all family business today, baby. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it's on, you know. And and I love that, though. I love that, that he's that confident in all of it. But you're right. The thing is, is the one gamble he takes, and my wife and I were talking about this, watching it, is like, he has no idea that other Hungarian is alive and awake because they tell him he's in a coma. But they never tell him he woke up. My wife's actually the one that caught that because I used to go like, man, if, I'd be getting the heck out of there knowing there was somebody else that could possibly ID me. And she's like, no, they never told him he woke up. And I was like, oh, you're right. That's that police thing. And they didn't tell him any of that. So he has no idea there's somebody in the hospital talking to uh, you know Gus Fring about uh, what he looks <laughs> like. You know, so uh, and I, I'm like, you know, if the fax machine was just a little faster. You know, he doesn't get out of that building. And it's uh, it's it's amazing the gamble he takes. But again, I think that's what you're supposed to say is that like, oh, that's crazy. How could that ever happen? But that's the kind of guy Kaiser Sose is. He's so sinister and so on top of everything that he's like, I, I can sit here and screw around with you all day and it doesn't matter because I'm going to walk away. It's not going to be a problem. Like he's he's got it all figured out, which is crazy but it makes the character so much more fun it's it's part of the mythos oh yeah and when you talk about how you know he doesn't doesn't count on the burned man you notice when 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 kuyan comes back in says hey who's kaiser soze and you know uh, he's kent you know slams on his chair genuinely angry and i think that is kaiser soze that's him realizing oh great someone survived and i I didn't catch this until like last time but it's not until kuyan mentions kaiser soze that's by coincidence, when Kaiser Soze pops into the story, uh, Kent is telling. Yes, and I think yes. Kent's probably he was probably hoping that to never mention Kaiser Soze and just be and just and to walk out of there. Hey, no, I think you're right. I think he would never mention it until he absolutely has to, and then he's like, "Shit, now I got to get into all this." Well, okay, I'll just spook the hell out of this guy. So he tells this crazy story. You know, Kaiser Soze was just a dope runner, and these guys, these Hungarians, were going to take over his business. So they kill one of his kids in front of him, and they they've already you know molested his wife, and they're going to kill all the rest of them. And he's like, "Okay, sure." So he shoots two of them, then shoots his family, then tells the other guy, "Go tell the other bears what you just saw," you know, and then takes them out like Unforgiven style. Like you know, I, I'm going to kill the guy and all of his friends and burn his damn house down. <laughs> you know, and I'm and the guy they got to play like Soze in that moment. He looks like he could like you know front a metal band from yeah. you know Germany or something. He's like in one of those things. I don't know who that is, but it's some guy. I think it's a random guy they had. But I I love that too because you're looking at it and what you realize knowing again knowing the secret of it and how it's going to go is that he's telling this story about this you know this mythical crime boss to this you know cop basically. To try to build him up larger than life, when in reality he's five six and he's he's nobody you would even think about, you know he's just nothing. But to look at him, you don't you don't get fear. So he builds this image up that he's just this you know unstoppable force of nature or something. It's he's like Michael Myers or something. Oh, oh yeah the yeah the the character of Kaiser Soze is whether like whatever is real or not, just this character of Kaiser Soze is one of cinemas. 
greatest villains. This combo of like a, you know, drug lord kingpin. There's a little bit of like a. I always think he has a tinge of like a super, a comic book super villain. I always think of him of like Rachel Ghoul from Batman. How he's just you know international yeah. criminal with a with a string of, uh, of assassins and armies and stuff. And but this the story of that origin in the family, I think. That's verbal, just like making it up because he thinks, okay, I guess how do he's trying to? I think he's trying to further remove himself from Kaiser Soze. So I'll make him uh, a total psychopath. Love the way that scene is shot, very you know, and like the frame rate's all down. It's very broken and stuff. It, lo- it makes it look really scary, like something out of a horror movie. It makes Soze look like a real, you know, like some like like the Joker, the kind of guy who would kill like kill his own family, and and then, and then killing an entire gang and all their friends. But to me, I think that is so evil. That it's that it's phony for the for, for the purposes of you know uh, that it's like no no nobody that crazy could run a criminal empire <laughs> that, that successfully. I but, agree. Uh, I th- I think he's trying to tell the spook stories. He's yeah. trying to freak this guy because I, I mean at this point Kuyan's just so cool and in control. He's like, how can I rattle this guy? And you kind of see on his face. Like Kugan's like, holy shit, this guy's even worse than I heard about. Yeah, and when the other cops talk about Kaiser says they're like, Yeah, I know a guy that's got a file on him a mile deep. But like nobody really knows anything about him. So that's the thing, is he like, I can tell anything. Well, I can make up the most crazy shit I can possibly think of because maybe you'll back off at that point. <laughs> you know, and it, even if you don't, now you're like, Holy shit, what have I gotten myself into? And yeah. that's the idea. Is if these guys knew who and here's the other thing, and I'll throw this out there. If we believe the idea that like verbal Kent doesn't exist or whatever, who's to say Kaiser Soze didn't walk up to these guys in New York and go after the lineup and go, uh, by the way, I need to talk to y'all and the whole scene that happens in California where you know they lay all the shit out that he's got on all of them. That he goes like, I'm Kaiser Soze, and you're going to do this, or I'm going to kill all of you right now. And they're all like, holy shit, yeah, we've got to do that. Who's to say they didn't know he was, you know, all the all along? That that whole shit at the end with Keaton is just bullshit. That, you know, it, it, they just didn't think he was going to turn on them or something. Oh, yeah. Like, again, like, it, it, could, it, could be anything, it could be anything you want. And I like to think that, like, the, like the name Kaiser Soze, like, like you know, Kevin Spacey's character, his name is not actually Kaiser Soze. But, again, like verbal Kent that Kevin that that you know that Kaiser Soze was created as a persona like he, he basically you know whispered in every little other person's ear you ever hey you ever hear a Kaiser Soze and spread this rumor of the guy like no one's mm-hmm. ever ever seen him but like like you look at Kevin Spacey his name is like the, whoever he is he like you know Kevin Spacey's from you know he's from New Jersey his name is not Kaiser uh Soze but but that this guy whoever this guy is has built this criminal empire using the fear of this image of Kaiser Soze, which is another great villain ploy. Well, and I, I will totally say now, watching it and then having rewatched the series recently, I totally feel like that's what they were going with on Breaking Bad with with uh, Walter White and Heisenberg. Oh yeah, that he, yeah, that he built this, you know, Heisenberg was just this evil, you know, persona or whatever, and when in reality it was this nerdy chemistry teacher trying to make some dough on the side that got him <laughs> way too deep, you know, right? And that's another story for another day. But I mean, really, the, I, I kind of feel like I'm like they they pulled that out of the usual suspects because I'm with you I've always felt like who's is there even really a Kaiser Soze who the hell even knows and this guy may not even be him he's clearly somebody powerful because he wrangled a lot of shit but maybe he's just using that because he knows it'll get people's attention and make them go ooh and freak out a little bit you know I mean there's that Hungarian saying it was him but 
I, you know, why does he know? How does he know that other than the Guatemalan guy that's screaming it all over that, that damn boat before they shoot him? You know, <laughs> so I, yeah, I, it's it's pretty wild the way that that goes down. We got to talk about our three cops here, and really the big one. We talked about Dave Kudon a little bit. To me, Chas Palminteri is who sells this more than anything. He is so fantastic, and to find out he did this in like a week. Or something like they, they barely were able to get him. They got him right in there. He is so good. I mean, the man is born to play either a gangster or a cop. You know, <laughs> his, his, his whole life or like a club owner or something like that. He is so good. And like, you don't know anything about Dave Kuyan other than he's got friends in the FBI. He's got friends at the LAPD you know, or the San Pedro PD, which is, you know, LA. He's got, he, he just knows people, but he's a customs agent. Which is so, like, you don't think of customs agents being, like, these super cops, but they kind of are. Like, when I think of customs agents in movies, like, I immediately think of Cliffhanger. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever seen that Stallone thing, but there's, like, a customs agent in that. And I'm like, I mean, Stallone's a customs agent in that, or a treasury agent. And I'm like, I don't don't think of those guys being, like, you know, John McClane or anything. And I love that he he, he wears the same clothes the whole time. He doesn't do anything real different. But he's so in charge. He has the most dialogue in the movie next to Spacey. And he's telling the story as much as anyone else. He is, yeah. It's a great performance by Chaz Palminter. He's one of those actors, like, since this movie, he hasn't, he never got another big, juicy role. Like, he was in Analyze This and a couple, maybe a couple movies here and there. But, like, he he's one of those guys, I think he's, like, buddies with De Niro. And it's a shame he never really... Did something this this good again, but he is he's a superb actor. Like if you haven't seen it, everyone needs to go see Bolts over Broadway because he, oh. he he has a small it's a relatively small part in the movie, but he totally steals that entire movie. There's a point in the movie where he exits the film, and I never realized how little I cared about the other characters than when Chas Palminteri exited the movie. But that's you know, that's a whole other thing. But he's fan, he's a fantastic actor. He's great in the Bronx Hill. I think he does a lot of Broadway. I think he does a lot of stage stuff. I oh, think yeah. that's his his favorite medium or whatever. But he is so good. He's so fun, and he's perfect in this role. Like I like Dave Kuyan. Sometimes the cops in these heist films, like you get to where. Unless it's like heat and they're like part of the story, or whatever you get to where like you don't you don't like them necessarily or you don't want to root for them, even though you, you really should morally, but you know you you don't want to like I have nothing against Kuyan. I mean he's kind of tough and he's kind of rough on poor old verbal Kent here, but he's gonna get to the bottom of it. And the one thing is for sure, like his white whale is Dean Keaton. Like he has wanted to nail that guy forever, and he just can. He's always just missing. I mean, when he tells all that stuff about what Keaton supposedly did in prison and all, he's like, "Of course, I can't prove any of this to you, but also I can't prove to you that he was on that boat the other night either." You know, yeah. and all this stuff. And I, I just, I love him. I think the fact that he's in, he's in one set the whole time, and he makes it work, is fantastic and a lot of it is in how singer directs it and in how it's edited too but i'll give macquarie a real push here the best dialogue in the movie is uh kuyans he is hmm. the best stuff to me i love watching him work and and work through chunks of exposition and stuff and making it so interesting like i could listen to this guy read the phone book and it would be interesting <laughs> i mean i think he's just that cool he is. He is a, a great character. He's a great detective and interrogator who who thinks he has it all figured out because you know he is great at his job. He, he at this point he just kind of assumes he's always right, and he knows Keaton so well, so he kind of just assumes that since he was so devious that he must be the most it must be behind all, behind all this. And and he also he thinks that he's all he has it all over 
oververbal. That verbal is some simpleton that he doesn't have a clue that, but he has no idea that you know he he's behind the eight ball from the very start. And there's a great moment, one of my favorite you know Kaiser Soze moments in the movie is when uh, at one point he steps behind verbal, and so you know. Uh, uh, Kuyan can't see his face and he's talking about this theory how you know I bet Keaton's still out there and he's pulling your strings and how you're an idiot and you look on Verbal's face and he's holding in a, like I didn't read it until the second time I saw it but he's totally holding in a laugh of like oh man I got this guy wrapped around my finger this is so awesome he's loving that he's got so he's got Kuyan so far removed from the truth Oh, look, he realizes then, holy shit, he's buying all of this. <laughs> he's like, well, I've got to keep going because this is going to work. Hmm. you know. And, and even when he breaks down in the end when Kuyan's doing that whole bit, like it had to be Dean Keaton. He was Kaiser Sosa and all this stuff. you know. And Verbal was like, yeah, you're right. He was leading us all along. He like breaks down into that cry. Yeah. And it's almost like he's laughing like, I can't believe you're believing this shit. You know, because <laughs> so, it's like, this is such bullshit, but okay. And I, I again, though, it's it's part of the good storytelling and it's i don't think that would work if you didn't have actors that played well off of each other too yeah. that it's you've got to have the kind of guys that can can pull that together and i i think it's something to be said that those those two were able to make that whole relationship work and just the you know the few minutes were with them in in the film you totally buy that their conversation goes down the way it does. I mean, it's it's fabulous uh, how he's able to spin Kuyan away. With the other two cops are kind of small parts. We already talked about Giancarlo Esposito, the you know Gus Fring, uh, <laughs> FBI Special Agent Jack Bear, and I'm like, what a cool name! That's, that's like out of the '50s noir right there. Like Jack mm-hmm. Bear is a, you know that. And then Dan Hedaya as uh, Jeff Raven. I, I love Dan Hedaya anyway. He's another good character actor that just pops up and he's the dad in Clueless, and then he's the bad guy in Commando. I mean, he's <laughs> just been in all kinds of stuff. And I love both of them. They play small parts, but they're pivotal at different times. Like they have good scenes and lines where they have to do stuff. Yeah, Jack Bear, he's a he's a he's a nice side character. What he is is he's a fresh pair of eyes on the entire thing, on the whole Kaiser Soze thing. And he also is like you almost think like if he was in the room with with uh, with verbal Ken, he might have figured it out sooner because because one thing about Bear, he doesn't know Keaton. Yeah, he's Kuyan's not as aggressive. T- yeah. Oh yeah, and you know, like Keaton's tainting the whole. Th- I mean, uh, Kuyan is tainting the whole thing with this. The okay, Keaton's the man behind all this. But Jack Bear, you know, he has no idea who Keaton is. So he, he's just and he. And also, he already knows about Kaiser Soze. So he, uh, he probably would have been a better guy to throw in the room. But again, Kuyan just thinks he's so smart. Oh, completely. Yeah, but I, I love you know uh, Jack Bear in the hospital with the Hungarian guy. Because he's like, he's like, you got to get somebody over here. I need some security. Would you shut up? I'm on the phone. He's talking to a guy who's burned half to death, you know, and and he's trying to, you know, he's on that huge cell phone, which, boy, talk about 1995, man. Holy cow. So, I mean, I, I remember those. I never had one that big, but that, I mean, that just makes your hand heat up just looking at it. You know, <laughs> that thing is massive battery on it and, and all that. But, you know, he spends all of his time mostly in that hospital getting that Hungarian to talk about Kaiser Soze. But he says, he, you realize that somewhere along the way, verbal Kent Kaiser shows that whoever he really is has been able to spin that yarn so well that the freaking FBI knows who it is. And when they hear it, they're like, holy cow, this is big. And, you know, and he's like, get me Dave Kuyan and get me you know, the, the cop in charge. And he's talking about, I, I need my you know, CIA guy in here. He gets all these you know, other people in the room to 
to talk about it all on that name. So I'm like, somewhere around the way, he's fallen for the the trap too of who is Kaiser Soze. It's like who is John Galt, but criminal. Yeah. Oh yeah, and he and he is a uh, he's actually a really smart uh, cop and detective because. Uh, he does something which would never would have occurred to me to do. It's like the second he says, oh, this guy saw Kaiser Sose. Okay, give me a translator and a sketch artist in here right away. And instantly, like, you tell me exactly what he looks like in terms of – that's a great yeah. thing to do for a – for, you know, how, how, do, uh, how do I find out who a mystery guy is? Let's let, you know, we can't get a picture of him. Dr- you know, describe his face for us. Exactly, yeah. I mean, he's, he's – you get uh, the translator in here and get the, the sketch artist – they go through all of that, and I love that. That's that's kind of the ticking clock in the movie, because at this point, like verbals, you're just waiting on him to get out of jail, basically. So, what else gives the movie any kind of timeline? Well, that gives us the ticking clock. That's you have to have those, and it's a smart way to do the ticking clock. It's usually a bomb going off, or you know, we got to blow the roof at twelve or whatever. And in this case, it's it, will this guy die before he can get that description out? And if he gets that description out, what's that mean? You know, what's that going to look like and, and how close is he going to cut it? Boy, he cuts it razor sharp but uh, <laughs> and thin, but uh, it, unbeknownst to uh, to uh, Kaiser and Verbal, I guess you'd say. But uh, I, really cool, though. I, I like the way that they work. And again, you know, Dan Hedaya, again, is, he's obviously friends with Kuyan. He's sort of a small role here. He's got the messy desk and all that. But his complete mess is totally what helps Verbal's story work, yeah. right? Because it's all that shit in the office that he keeps looking at. And he's like, I was orca fat, you know, or she was orca fat. And, all the, and he's looking at that, that uh, busted picture on the wall and stuff. And I yeah. just, it's great how he spins that yarn out of all that crap. Oh, yeah. Verbal's just thinking, you know, thank God this guy is the biggest slob on the planet because now I can, you know, I can, that's how I'm walking out of here. It takes a look at that, you know, horrible. Yeah. That, that bulletin board is like, that is the key to the movie. And yeah, like you said before, that one of the best moments in the movie is, uh, I've never, Kevin Pollack talks about this on the DVD, how I've never, I, I, I can't recall another movie like this where the first time you see it, he looks like he's bored. But the second time it's as if they inserted a different shot for the second time I'm seeing the movie because now it looks like clearly like a like like literally a printer a roller. It's so precise. He is scanning everything on that wall. But and and he is it's a decent character very much. He's just another cop. He doesn't know anything, and I don't think he cares. Like he verbal's telling the story about you know Keaton leaving Edie, and his reaction just to go you know. I'm weepy. Like he, he doesn't give a shit. He's just some LEPD uh, uh, sergeant. Yeah, he, he doesn't care. He's got 100 cases. I mean, you see his couch behind him. It's nothing but case files, like stacked five deep. He's totally slammed and overworked. He's got no idea, right? But but he's in there, you know, taping it. And I, I remember, you know, at the end of it, he comes in and he tells Kuyan, it's like, you don't have shit, Dave. You know, like, there's no, this, you can't believe anything this guy told you. No, but I know Dean Keaton was behind it all now, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You really think he was Kaiser Soze? Probably not, but it worked for this. That You know, like he, you know, I love how Kuyan is so convinced that he's got it all figured out, you know, right? And he he has no idea. Like what he does it when he gets that sketch, he realizes everything I just got told is complete and total garbage. <laughs> I can't believe any of it now. And that that's the, the great reveal between the two of them. But uh, no, it, it does make that work. So, um, yeah. Let's talk about the Kobayashi character. All right. Pete Postlewaite, you know, rest in peace. Great character actor from from uh, overseas. Been in a lot of Guy Ritchie kind of stuff. And, I mean, you know, he's in Inception and uh, several things that people would know him from, you know, seeing him around. But I, this guy, like, he always looks like this little 
frail, almost skeleton of a man. Like there's nothing to him, but he has such a charisma. It's all in that face and that voice, man. And he, he is the scariest character in the story next to, you know, what we don't know about Kaiser Soze. Oh yeah. Yeah. Paul a great character actor. He's one of those, uh, he's one of those guys that even if the movie sucks, he's usually good. Like Jurassic Park two is a, you know, total piece of shit, but he's fantastic. Uh, in that movie, and he was also great in in, in uh, uh, the movie uh, in the name of the Father. He was nominated for an Oscar for. Uh, oh that yeah, that's a fabulous movie. Yes, yeah, where he, where he throws himself in prison just to be close to us. Oh god, he's so good in that movie, and uh, and he was great in this. Uh, this and yeah, the, the, he he can be a scary guy when he wants to be, especially you know look at look at him in the, in the town and in this. Uh, you wonder how like for one thing, you know his name is not Koba. Kobayashi, that that, no, that, that that's just another that's, creation of, of verbal. That's the coffee cup, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the and, cheap china. But this the character is a uh, is a great creation of of, of verbals because he makes him he makes him scary and so on. And and, and literally the way Paul Sothwaite looks plays into that because you know he has very dark skin, uh, and he, the way he talks is like a, like a slight. It's not this is not his actual voice. He's putting on a voice like a slight Indian uh, accent. Mixed it's, with yeah, British. it's. It's like German, Hungarian, British. For all we know, he could be Kaiser Sose. You yeah. know? I mean, we really don't. All we are affirmed with at the end when he picks up Kevin Spacey outside of the police station is that he may not be an attorney, but he clearly is involved in this in some way. And I had a friend tell me once, he said, let me just blow your mind for a minute. He said, what if he is Kaiser Sose? You know, because that sketch, like, it looks like Kevin Spacey, but... You turn your head the right way, and it could eh. be him, you know. And I was like, you know what? That would be the most Kaiser Soze thing of ever is to have somebody in there telling his false life story after all the shit that just <laughs> went down on that boat that it was all set up by him. I was like, that that's kind of cool to think about. Oh yeah, like like when, when the reveal happens, and you think maybe all it was all bullshit, but when you see Postlethwaite with 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 Spacey in that car, it's like. Uh, his name's not Kobayashi, but whoever he is, he is in league with with Kaiser Soze, and, and for all we know, like maybe it's it's a maybe it's a pair. It's the two of them working together. They you know they are Kaiser Soze, and they're just the, the you know the, the, this two man team that have you know built uh-huh. this entire criminal empire. I mean, yeah, that's that's the thing that they keep impressing is that you know why why would Soze try to lure all these guys to this boat to just to do a hit? You know, or whatever, because it's under the guise of that they're going to get to rip off, you know, $91 million in cash and, and the drugs. And it's to take out the Hungarians that, you know, Kevin Spacey spends that yarn about, you know, that, that uh, Soze's been at war with. So maybe that's real. If they've, they've actually been at war and that, you know, drug war together and that this is his way to kind of knock them out of the game once and for all and kill, you know, a, a guy that knows who he is and take out some other guys that he's going to need to use for some jobs to set it all up. You know I mean? It's, it's a, it's a lot of stuff, but it's mainly all a big hit to take hmm. out the, he needs, he needs the gang to take out the Hungarian mob and he needs to get on the boat to take out the Guatemalan. And then he can kill those guys at, at his will. Cause they all, you know, owe him in some way or another. It, it, I mean, who's to say though, again, that they're not working together on it because again, you see some of those long shots of Soze, like that could be Kevin Spacey in a hat and stuff. Yeah. Or it could be Pete Postlewaite, <laughs> you know. I mean, it could oh, yeah. be a lot of things. And but you know, but think about it. If Kaiser Soze is German and Hungarian and all that, that's what Kobayashi sounds like. Is somebody from that part of Europe and that part of the Middle East? He doesn't 
sound like a guy from Jersey, you know, which is what yeah. Kevin Spacey sounds like. So maybe Spacey was his hitman or something. I mean, who knows, right? I, I don't think that's what McQuarrie McCor- McCor- would tell you that Kevin Spacey's Kaiser says. Like, that's what they think. Yeah. I'm putting a lot on it. But I think you could watch the movie and see that in it and have some fun with it. Yeah, like whoever he is, he is a dangerous guy, even if, it, if his verbal story isn't true. When, like my favorite uh, Kobayashi mo- moment in the movie is that bit where they uh, they try to, uh, well, like they, for that in that uh, that uh, the big skyscraper, they capture Kaiser, they capture Kobayashi, uh, and I love how even after they get the drop on him, they got a gun to his head, he still manages to talk his way out and make them even more afraid of him, and and Kaiser sells that by saying, if you guys don't do this job on the boat. And he starts naming he starts naming each of their you know their relatives like your uncle Randall your nephew, and mm-hmm. my favorite maybe my fa- almost my favorite moment in the movie apart from like the reveal is when he says now I'm going to go talk to Edie and if I see you guys again I'm gonna she's gonna find herself the victim of the most whatever brutal, brutal violation yeah violation and he and it's all silent he just walks over off into the distance and he sits next to her but and while she's she's going through her papers he looks back at the guys makes eye contact with Keaton. And then he takes a look at Edie like he's checking her out and then mm-hmm. looks back at the guys as if to say, just try me. And it's a, such a cold, great villain moment, great bit of music sting on that and how it's like, oh, we yeah. really don't want to mess with this guy. No, no, it's it's fantastic, and it's it's well played and totally works, too. That's the thing, is is he sells it every bit. I think it's it's all in the performance. And that it's so subtle, like he never gets angry, he never raises his voice, he talks in the same tone the whole time, which is... Even scarier in some ways that he's that sadistic, right? But and, and that committed. I mean, even he says like, "If you guys can go ahead and kill me, if you don't, I'd much rather you do because what's going to happen to me if you don't?" You know, because yeah. he he knows like, mm. and and I mean, I love how he never gets out of control. Like these two guys get their heads blown off in a elevator next to him, and he's like, "Hmm, that was pretty good." You know, <laughs> he's like, well, "Well, we'll add that to the cost of Mister Finster," you know, and that that's it. But I love I love how he gets him to stop. He he goes after the one guy that can make it stop, which is Keaton, because they've involved Edie Finnerin in this Guatemalan extradition guy. Because the Guatemalan claims to justice that, "Hey, I can name and pinpoint Kaiser Soze for you." And even if Kaiser Soze is more than one person or whatever, he can take down that criminal empire. It's clear that that exists. And that the yeah. feds would totally want to get on that. So that's why this whole thing's happening. It's it's all an elaborate hit, which is crazy. There's never any dope involved. That's a complete lie. And the cops even know that's a lie. But it's also, uh, it, it was all about taking out both of those groups. Just the one group didn't realize that they thought they were selling you know him to the Hungarians and the, or to the the yeah to the gang and uh, that wasn't the case at all. So it's I don't know I, I like it I, I like how all that plays through. But the Kobayashi character is so fun because he's the voice of Kaiser Soze when we're with the guys in the story. You know we we don't have a voice for him otherwise, and he gives him a a really neat one because again you you take him seriously. I mean Finster doesn't, and he winds up dead on a beach, so uh, in a pretty awful you know scene. But uh, you don't even know what happened to him. He's just his whole face is bloody, and his nose is blood. It's just gross, right? You know I'm not even sure what went down, but it I don't, wouldn't want it to happen to me. Yeah, the uh, I thought about this. Well, this like the first time I saw the movie, I thought about this, which is how. The first half of the movie, like before Kaiser Soze is even mentioned or, Kai, or Kobayashi shows up, we're with these five New York guys, and we're, and we and it has the feeling of like some kind of a 
maybe like a Reservoir Dogs, these five guys pulling heists, and it's got yeah. a certain certain element of like a, there's a sense of fun to it. But once Kobayashi shows up and we hear the story of Kaiser Soze, and we and 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 we and you know and we see this like when he hands, hands all the guys the files like we've been keeping tabs on all you you got your entire criminal careers and for the rest for the entire second half of the movie with a shadow of Kobayashi and Kaiser Soze totally taints the movie so that sense of fun is totally brought down to where now we're scared now like now it's like he could be literally around any corner he could show up at any point in the story he could show up he, like there's he could even show up in the hospital he could show up in the in the he is in in the police station but. It totally like takes this. I've never seen a movie like almost change genres like that. Like first, it's this fun kind of heist movie, and then it's like then it totally becomes a film, uh, a total like thriller, where 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 we're scared. No, that you're exactly right. It, that's when the thriller part clicks in. Is is when Kobayashi shows up and the specter of Kaiser Soze hangs over the rest of these guys. So that's the the part of this movie that it changes the genre, but it also makes it it makes it, it's a different kind of fun because now you watch these guys pull their heist and do their stuff and it's like oh that's kind of cute you know or whatever and then you realize holy cow this is serious these not the, these guys obviously don't make it out of this but now we realize why you know yeah. and it's it, the stakes go up big time when he's there and um it makes it it makes it good you know Susie Amos as Edie Fenran isn't really that big of a character she's important because she is the thing that Dean Keaton is chasing after and trying to keep safe or trying to... It's the only thing he seems to care about at all, if he cares about anything, is her, right? And <laughs> it's her involvement in this thing. But what we find out is she's dead before they even go pull the job, you know? So you always wonder, like, how close he really was with her. You know, like, uh, Kaiser Soze, whoever has her whacked in Pennsylvania two days before they ever even, you know, do the heist on the boat. So no matter what Keaton does, he's going after a, a false premise. It's like he's going after somebody that's already dead. And that it makes him even more tragic as as a character because you realize, like, when he what he supposedly says to Verbal when he tells him to stay behind and stuff, which is... Uh, interesting because you wonder if that's really how that went down or, or whatever because there's so much chaos going on there yeah he could have got around and got behind them at any time um but he does it because he says just tell her i tried you know whatever and i'm like you know that's the most undine keaton thing he said the whole time this guy doesn't i mean it, it doesn't sound like something he would say you know it it sounds like he wouldn't have even mentioned her because i kind of feel like once he's it, it, once he realizes she's in danger or whatever, that he's like, I got to cut ties with her. She's going to get killed and I'm probably going to get killed too. So I don't even know that I, I question whether or not that even really happened on the boat, that he even gave two thoughts about her. Hmm, well, well, yeah, the character, yeah, this character like, you know, doesn't have much screen time, but as part of the story, she's really, she's the human side, like the goodness of, of, of Keaton, because uh, there's a, I love that bit where, uh, where he's leaving New York and you can tell he's, you know, he's just sitting there in a chair. He like because he needs to go tell her, "I'm hey, I'm leaving New York," and he's also saying, "I'm also I'm back in the game. I'm back in the crime." And he, you could tell he just like he, he so desperately doesn't want to dis uh, disappoint her. Uh, and it's it's re it is really sad when he's just staring at her like he's up uh, he's up on some balcony looking at her, and he's like, "I can't do it," and he just and he just leaves. And how that doesn't even like him like Kuyon was like he doesn't buy it for a second that Keaton. That anyone could be in love with 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 Dean Keaton, 
Uh, and I like to think that's maybe that's verbal again, tainting the story because in the story that verbal is telling, Keaton comes off as uh, I don't know about likable, but uh, a somewhat calm, cool-headed guy, a guy who maybe could go to the to the good side. Uh, and I think maybe is the relationship with Finneran could be a fabrication, just to make just for verbal to make Keaton look. Uh, that much better to you know I guess to, I guess maybe to separate him more from Kaiser Sozzi or something. It, that's an interesting thought that maybe she's not even a part of their story at all. She's obviously involved in this because she's dead, and you know she she was involved in the extradition, so he, she was one of the hits he needed to make. But maybe she wasn't you know really a a, a big deal and, and involved with that. But I don't know I, that I, I almost feel like she probably was involved, but I feel like after Keaton leaves New York and he doesn't tell her bye, that that's the last of them that there is. I don't, I don't believe any of that shit on the boat that he's like, tell her I tried. And I'm like, nah, he, at that point he's too far gone. He thinks he's going to die anyway. I mean, Dean Keaton, you you realize that when he, when he meets up with McManus on the boat and he's like, there's no freaking Coke on this boat, man. You know? And they're like, well, we got to get the hell out of here. Cause we just killed like 40 guys. So we got to go. And Keaton's like standing there like, what the hell am I going to do now? You know, and he's he, yeah. so when he walks outside and he you know sees McManus die and he's like, what what the hell is going on? And then he gets shot in the back. The next thing he knows, you know, and it's not until after that that he realizes, oh crap, this is all just a setup. You know, if again you're to believe th- that's how that went down, because we don't know because again the bodies are all charred to hell and back because everything blows up. So you don't you don't even know if these people got killed the way that they supposedly got killed. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean that's the thing. And that's the other thing too. I'm like, you know, you make that point earlier about is Finster even a real person or or whatever. They never mention anything about finding a body on the beach. And you know, I think it's uh, Hockney that even says, "Hey, man, in like a day, they're gonna smell him. They're gonna find him." Yeah. You know, never hear another thing about it. You're like, maybe he doesn't even exist. Who who knows? Maybe it's just part of the tale. But it keeps the cops occupied, and that's the idea. And it can just be another name for the the story as it were i don't know i i think that's fantastic to think about oh yeah and, and you talk about you know keaton uh like uh the, the opening of the movie with him with uh you know him being killed by kaiser soze i like to think at like this is after everything we've seen he seemed he's he's really uh done in that scene he's not he's not pissed off that he's shot and he's about to get killed there's almost a sense of like relief he, he doesn't even have a frown on his face he's just like you know it's like what time is it and still think, okay, yeah, go for it. Like, I think he's like, he's like, he, uh, you know, he's, he's okay dying. He's like, the bullshit is now over. Yeah. I've always found that curious why he wants to know what time it is. You know, I'm like, what the hell does that matter? <laughs> you know, at this yeah. point, maybe, the, I mean, I don't know that there's some detail I missed along the way there, but I, I've always wondered like, why would you ask him that? You know, like what? What? What's the significance of that? Is that supposed to be like they're supposed to be done by midnight, or they turn into a pumpkin, or you know what the? <laughs> I don't understand what the deal was there. I I often wonder, like, why does he want to know what time it is? <laughs> so I don't I don't know. I just found that to be odd. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's just like a nice. It's a nice. That's like some kind of. They're just trying to make him, you know, uh, like 
he wants he a hitch. He wants to know what time it was when he died. We didn't. It's, it, it is a weird, weird bit of moment. I don't. Know, was is that going to matter? <laughs> Somewhere yeah. along the way, I guess. I guess so. I don't know, but it's it's funny that, that he asked that because I'm like that. That's the strangest thing you could possibly ask, <laughs> and I don't, I don't know why why he wants to know. But this also too, like if you're paying attention, there's clues there because you see the watch, you see the lighter, and then oh, yeah. when you see Spacey pick those things up, or if you're listening when he's getting released from the police station, he picks all that shit up. And you're like, wait a minute, isn't that what uh, Kaiser Soze had on him when he shot Keaton? If you're paying attention, you know, there, there's that little uh, moment, you know, 12 seconds before they reveal it to you, by the way. <laughs> so it's not like they give you anything big or you could have caught that earlier. But uh, it's, I don't know, I thought it was good. I, I do remember asking my mom, who says she figured this out before it ended, how did you know that, you know, possibly, right? And she was like, that guy was lying the whole time. You could just tell he was just making it up. Is it none of it sounded believable? And I thought, well, that's interesting. I guess that's a mom intuition or whatever. And I'm sure there's other yeah. people that probably have thought like, yeah, there's no way that's for real. But it's a, it's a great yarn, that's for sure. And uh, I, I love the 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 scene on the boat though. I think the big shootout, the big scene is the boat scene, and the way all that goes down, whether any of it happened that way or not, we we have to trust that Verbal's or you know Kaiser Verbal, whoever is not completely yarning that up. But I love the way that goes down. You get some great Stephen Baldwin in that moment too, when he's up there and he's counting off the guys. He's like, "Oh, oh yeah. McDonald had a farm, and he shot some guys, and all." I mean, that's <laughs> hilarious, man. And it's uh, it's just good stuff and uh you already talked about kevin pollack running up screaming in hungarian at the guy and you know he shoots him anyway and all that <laughs> stuff it's just it's well done that that whole action scene on the boat for a a movie with 14 million dollar budget that was pretty impressive yeah it is a really really great uh action scene and it really do it does amp up the the tension when you realize it is three guys going up against an entire boat full of people so it did it did feel absolutely dangerous and then bloody like I said, that bit where uh, McMahon's just opening fire into whatever doorway he's passing. Yeah, and, and one of the coolest things about that is how uh, within the story that Kaiser Soze, uh, like almost like he materializes on the boat, how the, the uh, whatever the informant's name is, how, you know, the, the guard knocks up. You think the guard, you think, like, you see the guard all of a sudden is dead with like a bullet hole in his head and he falls down dead. And we just see a shadow cast over the informant. And uh, he doesn't say Kaiser Soze, but he's clearly talking to him. He's like, I told him nothing. I swear. And and you just cut to the outside of the boat and hear two shots. And uh, and yeah, like 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 that – again, the, the presence of, of Kaiser Soze. Like because at this point in the movie, we don't know who he is. So we are just – we are scared of him. Like oh, yeah, we didn't make that bit when Hockney dies. How when he turns around, all of a sudden it goes white. Like I always think, like you could either that's you know that's Hawkney seeing the light before he dies, or that's like the that's the spirit of Kaiser Soze is so uh, bright and menacing that's the super hot white light. Whatever it is, they really just make him a spiritual thing there, Kaiser. Yes, it's the inside of the Marcellus Wallace's briefcase. I mean, it's that yeah. kind of thing is what I felt like. I was like, that's that's what Kaiser Soze carries around. You know, so and with him, but yeah, I, I've always interpreted that as the the reveal of like that's. If we're to believe again, believe the story and take it for for face value for what it is, then that's him going, holy cow, that's you? And then, you know, it's over. And it's the same thing. McManus does that, too. You know, when he's doing the whole, the strangest thing happened. He's like, (laughs) verbal, stab me in the neck. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, and he's like didn't know how to say it. Like even he's just so dumbfounded by it. And I love that though that that's his his ending. And you know, Keaton's the one that doesn't get that ending because of course he gets to see him face to face. He's like, it's your time, isn't it, Kaiser? You know, if if again you're to believe what you're seeing there. So which is you know to be to be decided but i i like the ending though it's it's a blast and it's a lot of fun and you can really enjoy the the whole setup to it and it's just a ride so uh, to get to that point and then he walks out of the police station right before they get the facts the, the facts of doom as i called it and uh pretty amazing you know and i i love uh, it's some of the coolest stuff. Spacey's been sitting in a chair the whole time. We should mention that. You know, for most of this movie, he's either sitting clumped over on the side doing nothing or sitting in a chair. He shoots one guy, you know, but he doesn't really do a lot because he's supposed to be, you know, crippled. Right? Or he's playing that. He's what he calls himself. And to see him when he's kind of limping down the street and then all of a sudden he just starts walking normal and he stands up straight and he lights that cigarette. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty slick. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking about the finale, like whatever it is, the last th- three or four minutes of the movie is some of the best three or four minutes in, in film history. As good as the rest of the movie is, like, the, like, like, like the, as great as the movie is, the last four minutes is like, you know, 4,000 out, out of 10. Now, how when, when Kuyan's building, he starts building the case that Keaton is Kaiser Soze and the movie makes it look like it is a reveal. Like Keaton was Kaiser Soze and like on an audience, you're, you know, you're, you're being shown proof that he is and it kind of does it does make sense up to this point uh and then you know and you know the the way kuyan is saying you know i don't know if he is maybe just a spooks maybe he is just a spooks right and he lets him a uh, lets him walk out and i think like uh kent i mean verbal like he's kind of you know he starts crying and stuff and he starts playing it's like no he wasn't kaiju souls and he starts revealing like yeah he was he was i think he that is him uh He's just leading him on, just trying to like he's that's Ken trying to wrap it up. So okay, yeah, he was he was verbal Keaton. Can I go now? Uh, he was he was Kaiser Soze. I mean, and, yeah. And up to the and at at that point, uh, and then you know uh, Kuyan starts talking about it's like one day like he it's it's like it sounds like the end of a TV show or something like the end of a season uh, finale. It's like and one day we'll get him. You know, maybe we'll we'll catch him someday. And it almost feels like the movie's about to fade to black. At, at this point, like you know, movie, it does feel like it's over. The, even the way the casual, like that little, you know, the cute joke, hey, you ought to see my garage, huh? And then, like, it feels like we're about to fade to black. And then Kuyan turns around and looks at that, uh, at the bulletin board. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and, the, and the, the drop of the silent drop of the coffee cup, you know, it's it shattering oh. on the ground. That is a great shot. Oh, the and cool thing is, is you don't know for a minute why the hell he dropped his coffee cup. What is he staring yeah. at? And then it slowly starts to reveal and that dialogue all comes back in. And you're like, again, John Ottman, fabulous editing job on that. And I'm like, man, you realize and I remember the feeling of like I've been totally snookered this whole time, <laughs> no way, <laughs> you know. And then I was like, "Wow, that's pretty fantastic." I mean, it's it's one of the best twist reveals ever. I mean, M Night Shyamalan, eat your heart out, baby. I mean, not even close to anything that unforeseen uh, that I'd ever been a part of before. Yeah, and like uh, to me, like a. Uh... Yeah, and like when we keep you know we keep shouting and the, yeah the great editing and sound editing cutting all the footage like his name was Redfoot blah 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 guy you know f- uh, some bricks Marlin s- some guy holding a, a picture of a, mar- uh, a picture of him holding a Marlin but the real big one was like when you see that 
uh, Kobayashi wasn't even real. He just happened to be whatever the manufacturer was that, you know, uh, produced that particular coffee cup. And it just really tells you, then it really felt like, oh man. So I didn't think he was Kaja Soze, but it was like, he told, he, that was all a lie. Well, why would he lie? What does this mean? Like, what, what, why would he make all that up? What does this mean? And they, uh, yeah, when we cut to him walking down the street and uh, the, the limping, that is one, like, that might be like a top 10 shot for me. Like the limping feet starts straightening out and you find out even the cerebral palsy was a lie and his hand, you know, I like to think like the way he straightens his hand and reaches for the cigarette and light it, it almost felt like his posture was different as though like all of a sudden he had like, he was like 10 times stronger or, so, or like he was suddenly a cool, like a cooler guy all of a sudden. He's like, he totally not uh, this guy verbal can't, I mean, he, you know, car pulls up and, and we see Kobayashi or whatever his name is uh, driving it. The great bit where Spacey is holding the cigarette with his good hand, like he does in the story, almost like he's joking with Kobayashi to say, hey, it's rapid palsy, right? Yeah. And they, they <laughs> yeah. just have this, they have this like, Kobayashi has this quick looks like, yeah, I get it. Man, they're stupid, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, it's, it's just like, yeah, and then you get that great line again, like, and poof, he was gone. And then, da-da-da, great music again. It's, it's some of Ottman's best music. I do think he's kind of a hit or miss as a, as a composer, but that that is perfect. The music in that is just great. And it's, uh, I mean, it leaves you going, wait a minute, you have to now question everything you just watched. You know, is is yeah. that real? Is it not? What do I do? And it, I I love that though. I like that this movie leaves you with that lingering of wondering, well, what's the story? You know, and we'll never know because there'll never be another one. And uh, it's <laughs> one of those that it's kind of like uh, you know that Michael Mann's talking about now to do like a prequel to Heat, and I'm like, why? I don't need it. I know all that already. And I'm like, no, don't, don't, please don't. <laughs> you know, but he probably will. But I I would be. I would be very upset if Brian Singer and Christopher McQuarrie decided, you know, we needed to do like a prequel to Usual Suspects, or we need to do a sequel. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, it needs to be a one shot deal, man. Like that was, you know, 149 or an hour 49 minutes is perfect. Like, don't don't do anything else. You know, just let it go. And um, very cool. And then our little noir picture is done. So I think we're we're both gonna extra large popcorn this thing. But let's give a final touch on it here for uh, Usual Suspects, Kurt. Oh sure, and I just got to mention like the app, the the literal last shot is is it to me is so like painful in a way how like we see the car pulling away that they just got into and Kuyon is standing right there like the car just stopped the car is literally stopped at a red light and Kuyon's like he's in such a panic he's so worked up it's like oh my god I just I just let Kaiser Soze walk out and he's literally like if he just turned around and maybe looked that way he might even see him it just it, you feel so bad for Kuyon is it, and it is such a great moment cuz like Kuyon now does believe in in Kaiser Soze when like and when Kuyon's a believer now you really know that it's that he's a that Kaiser Soze is a, a a real demon and then cut to black and just like that he's gone and that great sting of the Ottoman music and i feel like my brain is fried i feel like an idiot I feel like I just saw the greatest magic trick I've ever seen put on film the entire time. You know, the guy was CP, he was Kaiser Soze. You know, they're like verbal was verbal Kent was Kaiser Soze. Hey, there probably never even was a verbal Kent. And that's what makes him one of the best, you know, villains of all time. Is that he just he managed to fool everybody. And that kind of cinematic wizardry of being fooled that well and then not feeling like, yeah, right. It doesn't feel like a rev off. It feels real. That that cinematic wizardry is why this movie won the Oscar for best original screenplay. So, so how to sum up this 
how I feel in this movie. Well, I think until that reveal, the first you know hour and forty minutes is really great. But the first time I watched it, like I, I didn't love it because I was pretty confused because I thought it was a really good crime thriller. But I was like, well, what the hell? So what happened? So what? Keaton was Kaiser Soze? That's kind of a letdown. Like that's you know like also oh, the guy you know you kind of thought was the bad guy. I guess he was the bad guy. Yeah, it was kind of. But then after that ending. And feeling like I've been the victim of the biggest con ever, I suddenly love this movie for tricking me. Because, you know, before seeing this movie, only Sixth Sense had fooled me that much. And that, that, that sensation of a twist ending that really works, uh, I mean, that's why I watch movies. Hoping for that kind of sensation of, like, something happening that surprises me. And this movie, the cast is excellent across the board. The screenplay is as good as, as, as good gets. That, that, that John Altman score is so, I think, beautiful. It's one of the best scores in a crime film. Like that, the very opening of the movie over the, you know, the credits over the, over the black water, just the building up of that theme. I can't find a CD of it, but it's such a great piece of music. But it's this story. The twists and turns in the story leading us to that reveal, you know, it makes this movie a film noir work of art. I think this movie is going to live a very long life. It already has. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 tough to think that movie. It feels so like fresh and and like hip and and like you know, uh, it hasn't aged a day. And yet it was like twenty one years ago now. And I think it is going to live a long life. Like we said, with seven and great movie, there's always a generation that hasn't seen it yet, and they will see it and they will recommend it to everyone they know. And the cycle will go on like that. The Usual Suspects really is one of the best films ever made. It has to be said. And of course, it gets an extra large popcorn for me. I can't sum it up any better than that. I, I echo every bit of that with you, and I, except for the first time I saw it, I was like blown away, and like I must see this again, you know. And, and oh, yeah. I think I did watch it again with Rob, and I, it, it's one of those. And I'll ask you this though: the thing about twist movies is, once you know it, you can't unknow that, right? So, is it worth it to go back to it? And for this one, I say absolutely. Like it because you sit there and watch it and see if you can try to figure it out. There's that run through it. And then sometimes you can just watch it and just say, let me just see if I can figure out how much of this is real and how much of it's not or what I think is real or what I think is not. Like you, I played that game kind of this time and we've done that a lot on the show. And, and I think that's a fun way to watch it. Or sometimes you can just watch it and just be re-engrossed into it. I mean, go like I did. And it had been a couple of years since I'd seen it before you know, watching it for this podcast. And I was like, you know, I forgot about that scene. Oh, I forgot about that. And there's all kinds of just neat little subtle details. It's the best movies that every time you watch them, you get something new out of them. You're not necessarily getting new information. You're just discovering more because like a good book, it just reveals itself more and more to you. And with you put it best. It's a work of art. It, it really is. I think it's the best thing Singer's ever done. And And it's hard to follow that ever and, and you know x2 is a great film and he's done some really good stuff since but i think it's the best thing mccrory's ever done too because how the heck can you ever top that i mean you, i don't know how you would you know i'd spend the rest of my time playing the greatest hit that that was you know too because and, and you see that now and it's it's loaded with just such good character actors and so much fun uh, it's it's a good one and again if you're you know if you're new to this like if you haven't seen it before maybe watched it before this or watched it and we've told you to cool introduce it to somebody that hasn't seen it before and then watch the look on their face that's half the fun yeah. to me sometimes is to get people to watch it that hadn't seen it and they're like no way you know they do the same thing i did or they're like no I, I totally thought it was this guy and stuff so yeah extra large popcorn one of the the best movies of the 90s for sure and and a great crime 
film too. Just a, a fun thriller uh, to watch and something you can really enjoy. So I, I give it uh, a big, big hearty uh, extra large popcorn as uh, well. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.